Hey listener, welcome to Strange Currencies. It's like sliding into an open seat at a bar and striking up a conversation. Today I get the chance to sit with Paul Ferrargo. He's the founder of Ace Marks. He and I talked about his life in the shoe business, having one of the most successful Kickstarter projects in history, and what it's like to run a company from the beaches of Miami. Should be a fun conversation, so let's go. All right. Today's guest is Paul Ferrargo from Ace Marks. Um, I've had the pleasure of working with Ace Marks over the years with our company Cool Material and Rotary Digital. So I feel like I've been following them for a long time and they have this really great story. They started from a Kickstarter and they've become something um, far more uh, bigger and more developed today. So uh, Paul also happens to have a really, really cool history in the business of shoes. So uh, I'm looking forward to learning more about the company and Paul and and here we go. So welcome, Paul. Thanks, Sean. Great, great to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I appreciate having you. Right on. Uh, okay, so I, the first question I had for you is, uh, how'd you come up with the name Ace Marks? So you know, funny you ask that because that's a question I get I get asked very often, and I figured that after almost seven years in business, I'd have a better answer. Uh, but I, I, I'm going to stick to the one, the, the truth and the one I've been answering for seven years is that I wanted a strong masculine sounded sounding name for the brand, preferably uh, starting with the letter A. Um, and it came, we made samples, uh, samples ready to go. I still didn't have a name, <laughs> a name for, uh, for the business or the brand. And I remember sitting in Spain in a hotel room, just going through like every combination of like strong sounding American, like masculine names. Um, and the only one that the URL without having to write shoes or store or company after it that, that I could figure out that was available like at two in the morning was Ace Marks. Um, and that's that's just kind of what stuck. <laughs> it's funny. Uh, why why did you have to have an A to start it? Uh, because I've had, you know, having been in the shoe business for, for long enough, um, just for example, one of the other brands and one of our other businesses is is, is Venatini, starts with a V. So whenever we'd sell to Zappos or to Saks or one of the other online retailers, uh, we'd be listed towards the end. So if people were looking to discover a new brand on one of those marketplaces, uh, we'd be posted last. Almost like the idea, you know, AAA, you know, locksmith or AAA, whatever in the phone book back in the day. Yeah. Same thing, you know, so we wanted to have something that would be listed towards the top of, of a brand list. If, if we ever decided to go that route, right? We we only saw on our website today and have, have forever, but I was kind of looking towards the future. If we would end up in a situation like that. So funny. Um, I've had a few guests now and a lot of them, um, or a few of them at least, have talked about how like kind of the URL really drove the name. So uh, Huckberry, for instance, was supposed to be Huckleberry and they couldn't get the name and Huckberry was 1099. So they took it. So it's just funny how that how the, the name of a URL can really drive uh, the name of an overall business. That's funny. So you were talking a little bit, uh, you, you started to touch on this about the shoe business and you and how long you've been in it. And you said to me earlier that it's a family business and you've been in it since you were very young. Can you share a little bit more about that? Absolutely. So to be clear, Ace Marks is not really part of the family business. That That's separate. But yeah, but yeah, yeah my, yeah, my yeah, family's... Yeah. Yeah, no, no problem. Yeah, my my family's been in in the shoe business for a very long time since sometime around the mid eighties. Um, just to give a, a very short history of that, uh, you know, I, I spent probably from the ages of like nine, ten, eleven, twelve, and on. Uh, most of our summers were spent in Italy visiting factories, watching my parents, you know, make a collection, make a line, speak to designers, uh, technicians, last makers 
going to tanneries, picking leathers, understanding like what's the difference between a good good leather to use, bad leather to use, good materials, bad materials, like how to properly last a shoe, you know, everything down to down to the glue that gets gets put on when uh, uh when you're lasting turning shoes, uh, different types of constructions, uh, Blake Stitch, Goodyear Walter, Vulcanize. Um, there's just so many things that yeah. I spent uh spent really my youth doing and and for a long time I, I kind of worked my way up in that business. I unloaded containers for the longest time, worked in the warehouse, uh, went to trade shows, uh, was a sales rep uh for you know big accounts, small accounts, uh built built the line, built collections, uh, you know, took care of QC, uh, went to factories all over the world, China, Port Spain, Portugal, Brazil. Uh, just overseeing production and, and wow. just working with with the local technicians. So yes, I might have a pretty extensive background uh, in the shoe business. Um, and thankfully, I think that was very helpful in in being able to to provide the the quality that that really we we make with Ace Marks. And oh yeah, I, I mean, yeah. I've got to assume that you've you know your story has got to be really well thought out in terms of when you launched Ace Marks. But that's that's the next question. So when did you decide? to start a kickstarter for ace marks and and uh two parts obviously that was hugely successful and so why do you think it was so successful i know sometimes that question could be a lob but yeah maybe there's a little bit more to it yeah no absolutely so it's what's funny is you know i have a lot of experience at that point in time when i started ace marks i had a lot of experience making footwear and selling footwear but just not necessarily online we had some exposure to to e-commerce uh in, in my family business but uh, it was just complete afterthought and never a focus. So with Ace Marks, once we we built the collection, we built. I knew we wanted. I wanted to make it direct to consumer. You know, I I had everything settled. I had the shoes in front of me, and I was like, okay, like now what? Right, I'll I'll I'll, I'll build a website and I'll put the the shoes on there. But then how am I going to drive traffic to it? I also wasn't VC backed. I didn't have a ton of money. Uh, my family's not the type of family that says, here, take a bunch of money and just go figure something out. I was like, okay, good luck. Figure it on your own. Okay. Take zero money. <laughs> yeah. Um. And, and so, you know, Kickstarter was, it was 26, 2015 actually. And Kickstarter uh, was kind of on my radar. And I said, you know what the hell, let's just give it a shot. So I spent, we were ready to launch Ace Marks actually in 2015. But when I decided to go on Kickstarter, um, I also realized I knew nothing about Kickstarter. So I spent all of 2015, uh, making videos, uh, just literally transcribing every successful Kickstarter campaign, understanding like the structure of, of what a successful Kickstarter campaign looks like, what the script looks like of a successful video, um, wow. just kind of like breaking everything down. So like I, I, I just felt comfortable with Kickstarter that it'll be successful. Um, and then if it literally, we, I mean, I, I, I made so many versions of, of videos. Uh, I don't remember the exact number at this point. But it took me about a year of doing that and studying it until we were, I felt comfortable that we were ready to launch. And and frankly, what made it successful was probably not even anything that I spent the year studying. I, you know, I think that we had, we built a nice campaign, uh, but we, you know, we a big part of our success early on was probably some of the influencers that we worked with, and and that was a mistake in and of its own. Um, it it really it was. Uh, it was a lucky coincidence that we ended up working with some guys like uh, like Real Men, Real Style, Alpha M, uh, Gentleman's Gazette at that point. So it, it was just like a confluence of things that turned out to be very fortunate and right place, right time type of thing with a little bit of strategy in there, too. <laughs> well, so you, you you were saying that the, the influencers, they were part of the overall Kickstarter 
where they were where they were promoting the, the the Kickstarter project for you? Yeah. So so when you know we launched back then, the thought was the, the advice when you're going to launch a successful Kickstarter campaign was make sure that you have friends and family at the very least that you know are going to help you hit that goal. So we did a lot of outreach to our to our network. Um, but then beyond that, so we did that, you know, we're probably day two or day three and we're like, okay, kind of, kind of now what, like we're trying to get some press, we'll get some things in the work, try to get some sponsored, sponsored content on websites on blogs. Um, but then we had reached out to actually, I think it was, it was Antonio real man, real style. And apparently didn't know it at the time. He was part of a bigger network, uh, called Menfluential, um, became, ended up becoming really close. And that was, they had just started, uh, back then, you know, just maybe a few months before that six months, maybe not even a year. Uh, so it was just kind of like this interesting time where like a lot of things came together. Uh, frankly, I thought that that uh, real man, real style was really a, a fake blog that was part of one of my competitors marketing strategies. So I, Julian, funny. who's I guess considered my co my co-founder, um, he, uh, he had reached out to them and I, I probably would have never reached out because I thought we were alerting the competition that we're, you know, we're, we're kind of launching. <laughs> So it was just like a funny, just funny coincidence. That's really Very funny. Great. You, you yeah. mentioned earlier, unless I heard it wrong, you said that, you, you know, the influencers were a, a key part of your success, but then it sounded like it was a bit of a double-edged sword. Like, uh, am I right? No. That, no, no, no. Okay. So it was just all good. Okay. It was all good. They were, they were a huge part of our, our success early on. Um, yeah. I mean, and that, that's really how we started working with influencers. It was through, because of that campaign, we saw, what a great job they did. Um, we also thought it was a great way, you know, frankly, as a new brand, like nobody knows you, you don't have a store, people can physically touch the shoes. So we felt that that working with influencers was a great way to to get an audience to to understand the product better, educate the audience about our product and and frankly add a little bit of credibility to to the brand and, and the product itself. Cause there are, there aren't that many way, great ways to do that quickly. Uh, online and, and also you have to remember that back then this was 2016 the influencer market was very different i feel like today it's people are a little bit more skeptical about what someone online is telling them about a product just because everybody is doing it it's such a huge market today um, but back then i think that influencers had a much more organic audience and, and not every post was a sponsored post and it was it was a little bit of a of a different time uh when, for influencer marketing so it was it was a really, really, really strong way to to market a new brand and a new product and, and gain some credibility fast. I feel like we could uh, spend the rest of this podcast talking about influencers because I have yes, I have such a strange um, and not strange, but like a complicated relationship with them. Like they're a big part of us, right? Like we drive a lot of value from them, featuring them in our newsletters, but. Anytime I've tried to work with them to drive subscribers, right? So to go to go to some of them with huge followings and drive subscribers, it fails miserably. And so it always makes me wonder, like, what is the value? When we send, you know, 30, 40,000 clicks to a page, you think, well, that person must have a huge following and a responsive following. And then we'll try to work with them to try to acquire subs. And we'll be lucky if we get 100. It's just a crazy, crazy thing. So for influencers for you now, do you still use them in some way? Are they still part of what you do? Or is it really just uh, sort of changed altogether? It, they're still a part of what I do, uh, what we do. It's definitely not the same. It's, uh, again, it's it's been some years now, and I think their audiences are much more skeptical. They're not so quick to go out and buy what they recommend because, yeah. you know, unfortunately, there's it, everything's bought and sponsored. And, 
and the audience is a little bit more reluctant. But I think that there's still a place uh, within an overall marketing strategy for influencer marketing. And I think we're, you know, we're seeing a lot of success with it is more on the UGC side. So having them create content or helping us create content uh, for our Instagram, for our social channels, for, for paid ads. Uh, we think that that's, that's a good use of influencers today, but we don't see the success that we saw as we did before by just having sponsored videos. You know, the idea is you can sponsor a lot of their videos and maybe some will go viral and reach a large audience and that'll be very helpful, but you know, there's no guarantee of any video going viral. And so yeah. <laughs> the reach of a lot of their audiences is is not what it was, you know, even three or four years ago. Right, right. Yeah, okay. We we, we move on from influencers. So um <laughs> sorry. Uh, no, no, no. I, I was the one that asked. So you you know, I always like to ask this question when you launched um Ace Marks as Kickstarter, did you identify an opportunity in the market? Did you see something missing? I mean, it is shoes, so I don't know. Or was it that you just felt like you could do it better? The combination of both, actually. I, one, I, I, for sure, the first idea was the thought that I can do it better. I was wearing, and I've told this story before, I was in the on my way back from a trade show, and I was sitting at the Dallas airport uh, in Texas, and I was looking down at my, I think, I, I don't remember I mentioned the brand before, so I'll, I'll keep it out, but you know, very popular footwear brand, uh, you know, mid to mass market, third pair of shoes I got from them, I'd pay 300 bucks, you know, buy the same shoe all the time. It was black, the leather was turning green because it had some scratches on it. And I was like, you know, $300 for the shoes it was made in India. Um, and it just didn't look good after just a few weeks, really, maybe it was two or three months of wear at that point. Yeah. And I thought I can do it much better. And for 300 bucks, I know that I can go to Italy, produce something, sell it online, go direct to consumer and just give a lot more value to the customer. So that, that was actually 2012, but I didn't actually act on it until around 2014, 2015, wow. and then launched in 2016. And then, you know, I did do some market research, and I noticed that at that time, there weren't too many shoes or brands selling at the two to $300 price point. It was like under 200 or then like over like 350 to 400 So I felt wow. like there was a little bit of a gap. And today, that's really where all the direct-to-consumer brands are, like that two to $300 range, yeah. so... Yeah. It filled, the gap filled quick. Yeah, as always does. That's smart though. Yeah. Um, and then part of your brand messaging, I I noticed also is is your uh, is your factory story, which I think is really interesting. And so so number one, uh, maybe talk a little bit more about that. And then also, I would love to know. I think for most people, like, what's the process like to find a factory? I mean, you've been doing this for so long that maybe it's just not as difficult as it appears to sound. But it sounds like to any of us, like it would be really difficult to find the right factory. Yeah, absolutely. So for me, it was a little bit different, I'd say, than, than probably for, for a person just starting out in, in a new industry that doesn't know anything about it. So have, having had experience working in Italy for so many years, and, and frankly, a lot of other countries working with factories, I already had a really strong network of of just people in the business that I, I can go to and say, hey, I want to make a shoe that X, Y, that this type of shoe, this type of construction, and I, I can get a lot of leads pretty quickly and, and trusted leads. Um, that was definitely a big part of finding this factory. It was, it was a relationship that we had before. Um, but I still am constantly looking for new factories and new sourcing. So I actually just, you know, we we started manufacturing a sneaker in Portugal uh, just this past year. And I tried looking online, looking for factories. It didn't work out so well, but that, which is one great way to find factories today. Alibaba, if you're looking in Asia, there's, there's other uh, uh, websites like that. 
but at the end of the day, I always find the best way to do it is to just go to the country you want to manufacture and just start knocking on doors. Just get at least one or two leads to just get you into the door or just understand the general vicinity or vicinity of where these products are manufactured and just start asking and talking, being on the ground. Uh, that's always been the way that I found the best factories. The, the other way, you know, and also very common way is looking online, like I said, and then just going to trade shows. Every industry has a trade show okay. uh, where suppliers are out there looking for customers. So just learn where those are and go to those. But uh, yeah, I have to trade think show and then, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I have to think that it's far better for you to actually see the factory itself and to figure out if it's the right person for you at a trade show. Right. That, I'd say trade shows, is a, it's a great way to go window shopping, essentially. Build a few relationships and then kind of identify where you want to manufacture. Go visit the factory uh, that you met at the trade show if you can, and then go knock on other doors. They're usually, a lot of times, especially in foreign countries, there's industrial parks where uh, there tend to be more than one of the same type of manufacturer producer. So, And if it's not there, there's one nearby that has more. Uh, so get on the ground, have a reason to go to that place, but then spend some extra time there just doing yeah, literally right. knocking on doors. <laughs> literally knocking on doors. That's awesome. Yeah, um, yeah. And so you, you were talking about your sneakers a little bit, and uh, uh, that was a, kind of the next question for me, which is obviously you started out making dress shoes. Uh, you've become much more now. You make really great sneakers. Is there a moment in the company when you felt like, okay, like this is the time for us to do this? Does it is it a natural thing that you were always going to do more, or did you really have to see the success of the original shoe before you made that decision? No, it was, it was for sure not a natural thing. I I always thought that we were going to make dress shoes and only dress shoes. I didn't even think, and like, this feels, this sounds stupid looking back, but I, I didn't even think about making belts or shoe care accessories or anything like that. All of that really came from listening to our customers. And, and particularly, that's something that I think uh, Kickstarter is really good for and crowdfunding in general, just getting feedback from customers that really care about the product and the brand and they'll they'll lead you you just have to have an open ear and be willing to pivot and and take take their suggestions so belts was suggested during our first kickstarter campaign uh sneakers also were suggested uh from i think kickstarter backers or emails that were coming into into our into our customer service inbox um and so when a customer when customers request things it especially a lot of customers are requesting the same thing that's usually an indication that you should at least consider offering that thing to your customers. And that's how most of our new product lines came about. Frank, that's how most of our new styles have come about, just listening to our customers. Wow. So do you have a sense of like, and it sounds strange, right? But like, how many customers do you need to hear from before you're like, oh, this is really something, right? You hear from a couple, maybe not so much, but like, where does that sort of sit? Or is it just sort of a, a feel? Like I know, for instance, for our newsletters, if we have either an issue or something that people really like that we've tried, and you, you get a sense from hearing even though we have 700,000 subscribers on Elevator, once you hear a few, like it's a good sense to you, like, oh, this really is something that's resonating across the whole audience. Is it the same thing for you? Yeah, pr pretty much. It doesn't, it, we don't, I don't have like a hard and fast rule of how many need to request something for us to do it. Um, if, if they request it, it seems like something reasonable. I'll do some research, uh, see if it makes sense for us to get into that or to make a product like that. And if if it feels like it is and and we just kind of go for it we uh, another thing to to tie back to, to to crowdfunding i think what's what's really nice about that capability is is it's not a very expensive 
it's a, it's an inexpensive way to test new products. So right. it doesn't really cost me much to make a sample, take some pictures and put it out there and be like, Hey, like you guys like this essentially is what we're doing. You know, <laughs> let's see how many pre-orders we can get on it. If it's something that resonates with it, with our customer base, then, you know, we put it on our main site and, and offer it and offer it. I mean, that's exactly what happens with sneakers. Sneakers were part of our 2017 Kickstarter campaign. We sold them really, really well. And they went onto our website. I think we started with four colors and, I don't even know how many sneakers because we have now. I want to say maybe closer to 15. Uh, and, and we actually just added 25 more casual sneaker type shoes in November and December. So we just we're really expanding the casual section of our website. Wow. And so is that generally how it works where you will make a sample and then just get a sense of how many people are interested in them or pre-order them? And you just get to a certain level where you're like, all right, there's enough here where we do it. Uh, is that, I mean, it sounds... It probably is that yeah. obvious, but I always wonder if it's a little more complicated than that. No, that's 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 pretty much how we do it. So we have what we call factory access, which we it's essentially a crowdfunding platform that we built. Um, the URL is craft.asmarks.com, which we only have open a handful of times a year. And whenever I make a new collection or come up with a new product, uh, we'll do a little bit of marketing, mostly to our email list, put product up there and open up open it up for pre-order. To be very frank with you, let's say, you know, some, sometimes they're bigger campaigns, sometimes they're smaller ones, but typically we'll release at least 20 to 30 new products. It's been as high as 90 new products wow. and 80% of them, you know, we get a couple of, a couple of orders, we, which we can still produce thankfully in Italy, but you know, it's, it becomes very evident, like the ones that people actually care about because it's just skewed to like three or four products it's like the 80 20 rule on steroids yeah you know it's just a handful of products that really resonate the rest you know just kind of disappear and 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 we know not to not to move forward with it but but even within that those campaigns like we kind of look across campaigns not just within that campaign so if our best i don't know just to give a number of the best shoe in a in one of these crowdfunding campaigns we sell a hundred pairs. Well, we we know that usually our best shoe we sell four or five hundred pairs or a thousand pairs, whatever it is. Uh, we know that relative to other product that we have on our website that we've that we've stood that we got behind, it may still not be strong enough for us to really take inventory, uh, take an inventory position on. Got it. Got it. Okay. Thanks for listening to Strange Currencies. This podcast is for entertainment only. Any advice should be taken with caution. Except chocolate. Uncle Sean is right about that. You should eat some every day. Hosted by Sean Ryan and sponsored by Rotary Digital. Music mix and mastering done by MKG Marketing. Next episode to drop next week. Be sure to subscribe, like and share wherever you podcast.